It's Monday, November 3rd. It's November already? I can't believe it. Is, it is, man. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio today from Molly Pool One, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy first investing day of November, gents. Twitter is a flutter with Black Friday sales already? promos. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Like, I went in, I told you so I went So, the into, ads, you mean? Yeah, yeah, like your yeah, Twitter yeah. feed is just yeah, people. Yeah, I've seen them all over now. And, um, yeah, we I, we I went into uh, Target on Friday just to grab a couple of small things for my daughter's Halloween costume, and I mean, I, the shelves were all Christmas everywhere. It was, <laughs> I was surprised. I mean, I think you made a great point earlier with Starbucks and the red cup. It's the red cup, but everything else was still shouting Thanksgiving in the store. Yeah, when I went know? to Starbucks this morning, the coffee they were pushing was their Thanksgiving blend, which... It's a good thing I'm not an analyst on conference calls because I wouldn't ask <laughs> meaningful questions. I would ask CEO Howard Schultz things like, "Now, okay, the Christmas blend and the Thanksgiving blend; those are the same, right? You just <laughs> what are they? I don't get the Thanksgiving blend. Is it like there's no there's no flavor of Thanksgiving that I want my coffee to taste like? I, I'm just assuming that it's the the exact same thing, and they just slap another label up. I could be wrong. As a shareholder, <laughs> I hope so. So they're not specifically brewing coffee for three months out of the year. That, uh, it is not Merger Monday for us. It is Mailbag Monday. All mailbag this episode of Market Foolery. Radio you're welcome. You're well, how awesome is that that we can devote a whole show that's to right. listener email? That's, that's why our listeners are the best. That suggests perhaps a baker's dozen yeah. of listeners. Right? Radio at Fool.com is our email address. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Market Foolery. Let's start with something from Alan Burkholz in South Dakota. I'm interested in hearing if any of your contributors have ever been to a Qdoba and what their opinions of the restaurant and the parent's company stock might be. Uh, by way of background, Qdoba, the Tex-Mex concept restaurant, of which there are about 600 across America, uh, North America, because they have some Canadian locations as well. The parent company is Jack in the Box, a publicly traded company t- under the ticker symbol Jack. Um, and I, f- I apologize, I'm forgetting. There was another listener who tweeted... Uh, something at me recently about Qdoba recently changing their menu. And if you go to Qdoba.com, you will find that their menu looks a hell of a lot like Chipotle's, which, why not? If you're a Tex-Mex restaurant, it's working for Chipotle. So why not just say, hey, look, we're basically serving the same concept Mm -hmm. of food. Chipotle has an incredibly basic, easy-to-follow menu system. It helps with their throughput. Why not? Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the site design, it it's, looks eerily like Chipotle as well. Similar and I mean, colors and everything. Yeah, I mean, I, so Jack in the Box is the parent company. The ticker is J A C K, uh, and I'll I'll say right now, I mean, if I'm investing in one or the other, Chipotle or Jack in the Box, I mean, I'm going to invest in Chipotle first, and this for a number of reasons. Uh, but it's not necessarily a condemnation of Jack in the Box's business either. I mean, if you look at actually what. Uh, I mean, the stock has done over the past, you know, year to date, year, three years, five years. It's done very, very well. Um, there was an issue there about four or so years ago where they were really going through some problems with the Jack in the Box concept. Had to refranchise a lot of them, um, and we've seen the same problem actually with, with Qdoba's as well. They've they've had to close down a number of underperformers here uh, over the past couple of years to try and whittle away the fat there. But as you said, Qdoba is approximately 600 stores. Uh, they do franchise, so it's about 50-50 split there. Um, 
but Qdoba is is accounting for about 20% of Jack in the Box's overall sales today. Now that's up from about 4.5% in 2009. And so what was an acquisition a few years back to broaden their portfolio to give them a little bit of a more diverse offering has turned out to be a really smart one I think because you know number one we've seen sort of this this advent of the fast casual market segment and how how well it's really taken uh, through Chipotle and places like Panera and, and I would argue even Qdoba, and you know I think that the, really the anchor that could drag on this company for some time to come would probably be the Jack in the Box uh, concept. I think that's really uh, tamping down that top line growth that the company would see otherwise with with uh, the success that they have in Qdoba. Um, but you know I mean like you said I mean they are they are you know, if, if imitation is the most sincere form of flattery then Chipotle should be very flattered. Uh, but but certainly Chipotle has uh, some qualities that I, I think make it more attractive. I mean leadership, the founder leader there, and in, in Steve Ells, I think is a big deal. And in, in you know management team there between Steve Ells and Monty Moran, they've they've really proven themselves to be very uh, wise in growing that business at a slow and deliberate pace. And that's another thing is Chipotle doesn't franchise. And so if I could have the choice, I much prefer the non-franchise model because really. That gives them total control of that business and how it grows. Qdoba is outperforming the Jack in the Box concepts, but Taylor, it's not radically outperforming. It's twenty percent of sales. I think Qdoba makes up about fifteen to seventeen percent of locations, uh, but still, it is it is outperforming. Yeah, and you look at just a month ago today, they uh, pretty cool little thing they did out in Denver. They dumped a dump truck's worth of nickels and dimes into the street in Denver. So their customers could come collect. Tired of being nickel and dimed for extras, they're giving away <laughs> their guac, their sour cream, their three cheese queso, and their queso diablo for no extra cost now. So everything is just based on your protein that you choose, um, rather than having to pay a dollar or two extra for guac. So I thought that was a pretty cool little stunt they pulled uh, in their in their home city, I guess. Um, but Jack in the Box continues to surprise me. Because you can chase down egg rolls, tacos, and burgers with a milkshake, all at the same fast food restaurant. I don't know how they do. They it. serve Everyone, egg rolls. Oh yeah, they serve literally everything: breakfast, lunch, and dinner all See, day I, long. Okay, I've never been to a Jack in the Box. Yeah. You've been there. Though. I have been. Yeah, um, not in a long time, but the men, I think the menu is pretty much the same. I mean, um, when I was in high school and college, I used to work kind of near one, so it was a, it was a lunch break type of place every now and then. Um, but I don't think they've changed. Whereas everyone else is trying to simplify their menu. You literally have probably fifty different items you can buy at a Jack in the Box. And I'd even argue that Qdoba, Qdoba's menu certainly seems to be a bit more involved than Chipotle's. It's certainly yeah, not yeah, as simple. You can get nachos and quesadillas. You can yeah. get, and they're all they have some specific items rather than customization. You just buy items off the menu. Yeah, and I mean Qdoba is it, it, while it represents about twenty percent of sales, it represents about seventeen percent of operating profits. I mean they they do pay more for the quality of the ingredients that go into Qdoba. I think because they have to, right? I mean, Jack in the Box is more or less fast food uh, versus Qdoba, mm-hmm. which would be more of that uh, fast casual market opportunity. And, and so, I, you know, I mean, they're going to probably, I, I would assume, continue to do that. Um, I, I don't. I would be very uh, aware of of sort of watching the menu and how they build that out because when you make that menu more involved, that's when it becomes more and more difficult to manage. It becomes more and more difficult to become more profitable, and you see it play out in the margin lines with Jack in the Box overall margin lines, gross margin to twenty five percent, operating margin at twelve percent, net margin at six and a half percent. You compare that with something like Chipotle, 
gross margin at 38%, operating margin at 17%, and net margin at 10.5%. So, you know, that shows us that, yes, Chipotle does pay a lot for, uh, you know, the food that they're forking over, but, but they've also exercised a decent amount of pricing power here through the years, uh, which perhaps Qdoba could exercise that. I don't think Jack in the Box would, would have that luxury, though. I don't know if Qdoba sports the whole organic farm to, farm to mouth, as yeah. Chipotle likes to say. No, I didn't see anything like yeah. that in the 10K. I'm waiting for a, a burrito antenna topper from Qdoba. <laughs> you know, Jack in the Box has the little Jack in the Box oh, head yeah. that you can put on top that of your antenna. Mascot. <laughs> yeah, that's the deal. With that. yeah, okay, so here's a question. <laughs> I mean, this is a little bit off off the beaten path, but you know the commercial, the Burger King commercial, where they like they play the joke on people are like sleeping and they wake up to that Burger <laughs> King, King guy yeah. with the big Burger King. Yeah. So if you have a choice, could you're waking up to one or the other that's like, you know <laughs> staring you right in the face? Is it the big Burger King guy? Or is it the Jack in the Box like styrofoam head? Uh, neither. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the King's I mean, smile is pretty big. Worth so. pointing out that Burger King wisely retired that and moved on to other promotional masks. It was a strong, strong theme while they had it. A uh, question from our colleague Rob Brunette. Uh, nice that we have among our dozens of listeners uh, a few of our colleagues. Um, uh, about our recent conversation about Coca-Cola and McDonald's and their earnings, he writes: I'm curious about the percentage of U.S. and international sales that Coke attributes to its relationship with McDonald's. I ask because for months now, McDonald's has been selling all fountain soda sizes for $1. I'm not sure if that's supported by a marketing subsidy by Coca-Cola or a way for McDonald's to get more customers to add another $1 to their purchase. Anyway, just curious about the relationship as both of them are facing headwinds. Taylor, we were talking earlier this morning. It, it, it you know, and and Bill made Bill Mann made the point on a, a subsequent episode of Market Foolery that, look, if you're looking for a leading indicator on Coca-Cola, look right to their bottlers mm-hmm. because you can draw a straight line from the bottlers' results to Coca-Cola's. Um, in this sense, it may be not all that surprising that Coca-Cola and McDonald's are struggling at the same time, or certainly are seeing that declining sales in North America at the same time. Um, but in the industry that you focus on most closely, the energy industry, is there? I have to believe there's some type of similar relationship somewhere in the vast energy industry. Yeah, you're. I mean, it's so capex intensive that you want to look at upstream spending. Um, it it tends to take a quarter or two. Capex capital expenditures. Capital expenditures. Yeah, you want to look at um, exploration and production budgets because that then flows down into. Um, the services industry, either onshore or offshore, and then you have to look at the um, the suppliers of frac sand or something like that, which is really big in the United States. A couple of those companies, Carbo Ceramics, uh, to, to name one, has really taken um, a hit because they're one of the higher priced um, frac sand producers because it's more ceramic, it's it's much more specialized, and produces higher output, but because it is more expensive in times when capex gets pulled back. They're probably going to take the hit first, um, and and sand is a pretty big commodity. But you're seeing uh, states like Wisconsin actually pulling back on allowing production of the sand, so um, or mining of the sand, because um, it is obviously a, any mining is tends to be pretty dirty. Um, so you you kind of see that flow through from from the upstream all the way down. Um, the midstream doesn't really get affected that much though because a lot of it is contract based. It's take or pay. So these these producers are paying a pipeline company for capacity, and even if they're not shipping oil through it, they still have to pay. Um, so 
with pipeline companies that already have contracts built out, they're going to be less affected. Um, but if they're building new pipelines, you're going to want to see if there's uh, if their contracts are are filled because if not, then they're just left holding the buck on billions of dollars worth of pipeline expenditures that are then not reaping any revenue. Uh, refiners aren't typically hurt too bad because um, if if capex is being pulled back on the upstream, that generally means the price of oil is lower, um, as you see right now. So refiners get the benefit of the spread because they're getting a cheaper input price. Do you personally give CEOs the benefit of the doubt on how they spend their money on on capex spending, the longer their tenure has been? Because it seems to me, and I don't own any energy stocks, mm-hmm. but I that seems like sort of a natural. Well, look, you've demonstrated over the five years you've been CEO that you've done a good job, you've gotten a return on that investment, whereas my inclination on a brand new CEO would be to, I guess, give them a much shorter leash. Well, yeah, that's a good question. And it depends on, I guess, what part of the cycle the CEO's taking the taking the reins. Because you look at it, Aubrey McClendon, for a, a great example here, uh, produced great outcomes for well over a decade with Chesapeake Energy and Tom Ward, where they are both co- co-founders of that company. Um, but then the price of their commodity, their chosen commodity, natural gas, hit the floor. And so you re- they were exposed for what they really were. They were over-leveraged. They were pretty corrupt businessmen. But from an investor standpoint, for a while there, you were really happy with the results. Um, so, yeah, just to, I guess you have to take into account when they took the reins. But you look at um, some CEOs of the bigger energy companies, uh, they have a lot more on their plate, but they've also got some lieutenants that have probably been there for a while. So it's tough to really pinpoint. Um, I, I can't think of any anyone other than well, Harold Ham, I guess at Continental Resources, built that company. He could barely speak English, even though he's from the United States when he founded the company. His wife basically taught him. He was uh, from very, very, very small rural town in the United States. Started uh, the biggest oil producer in the Bakken and uh, has had a great run since then. Um, uh, Mike Papa from EOG, no longer the CEO, but EOG is probably one of the biggest success stories in energy in the United States. Um, and so those two, I guess you could look at as, yeah, just let them let them do what they want because they've proven it over multiple cycles. On my investing wish list for 2015 is that Aubrey McClendon takes his new company public. <laughs> He's not far away. They're spending billions of I dollars. Miss him. They're I miss buying Aubrey. assets like crazy. <laughs> From Luis Rossello, self-identified as listener number 51, as somewhat of an income investor, I always look beyond the dividend yield to the growth rate of the dividend paid out in the past five to 10 years. I do this by looking at the stock charts that list the dividend paid each quarter and then calculate from there. Is there a resource I could use that lists stocks dividend growth uh, dividend growth rate so that I don't have to calculate it for each stock individually? Thanks so much and keep up the great work. Jason? Yeah, so we we are very spoiled here because we have access to Capital IQ, which is a, a big vast treasure trove of data, you know, on all these publicly traded companies and private private companies too, but um so we can pull those growth rates uh, without having to really do any calculations. Fortunately, unfortunately, I think, and we'll double check with James Early, our uh, resident income investor expert, uh, to, to double check and make sure that there isn't something out there. I know that there is. You could go to Morningstar.com, for example, and uh, type in the ticker for whatever company you're talking about up at the top of the search bar, and it'll bring you up to that ticker page. And you hit the key ratios tab, and you can see. 
it'll bring down a history of of the annual dividends that that any given company has paid and you can export that data and and so what i would do in this case is export it to an excel file and just set up a simple excel spreadsheet um, with you know each company you know getting its own page and you, you just you know type in the the formula there to to figure out the percentage growth in the dividends and you could continue just to add to that sheet as time goes on so really all it becomes is it's not calculating it's just entering that that one number of the dividend whether it's on a quarterly or annual basis um, that's that's the quickest way I could think of right now there there may be something else out there I, I couldn't find it but uh, we'll definitely double check with James to make sure we're not missing something Morningstar has a, it's not often we plug other websites, but Morningstar.com has just a lot of information. Yeah, absolutely, uh, it does. Well organized. From Jake Miller in Pennsylvania, at the end of every show, there's always the disclaimer encouraging people to quote, "Don't buy stocks based solely on what you hear." When researching on your own, as suggested, what do you want to look for in companies' earnings reports and other statements that show signs of a strong company? Being a new investor starting out, I'm conducting research on different companies, but tips and strategies on what specifically to look for would be extremely helpful and useful. Uh, great question. And I think uh, the, one of the first thoughts I had when I read his email was, well, it kind of depends on the industry. Yes. Right? 100%. So, I mean, uh, Teller, I'll just spot you up first. Um, what, what are some things to look for? Because, and this is something else we've talked about before. There are different levers, and I'm not assigning any sort of malintent here, but there are different levers that company executives can pull on a quarter-to-quarter basis to make that earnings report look good. Yeah, that's certainly the case, and you know, a lot of one-time items uh, in the energy and mining industry, in particular, big write-downs can take place. Um, while you would hope to see them really truly be one-time items, sometimes they're not. So um, when I'm researching a company, to, irregardless of uh, the industry, I like to pull out at, you know if it's available, like a decade's worth of the financials, just to take a look at because three to five years. Um, really isn't enough time in my mind to isolate trends or whether or not the company has taken proper steps to improve itself on margins or you know um, cash flow or anything like that so while a lot of companies nowadays a lot of IPOs out there so companies are young especially in the tech space but I'd like to pull it out as far as I can up to a decade just to kind of take a look but like you mentioned industries are very 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 different so Energy and mining, CapEx is important, so return on capital employed. You want to make sure these companies are making money on the money they're spending. Uh, retail, you want to look at margins, their cash flow conversion cycle, which is days of uh, receivables outstanding, days inventory outstanding added together, minus the payable side. So um, are they keeping cash as long as they can rather than paying it out too soon? Um, and then you know, look at tech, R&D spend, tangible book value, do they have patents and things like that. So there's some things that aren't represented in the financial statements. Um, but a tip, I would say, is utilize the search function in Adobe if you're running through all these reports because you know, there's some of them can be 50 to 100 pages long. And if you're looking for something specific, you can find it instantly that way. What about you, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go a little bit bigger picture out just because I like everything Taylor said there. Uh, you know, a couple things that I'll, I'll look for also just as it's more, I think, in line with just how we view investing here is looking for clues that, that tell us that maybe these are management teams that are focused on longer periods of time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, I'll use Facebook as a great example. It's an earnings call that just came out, and you, you saw Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder of the company, and they're talking about his his three year plan, his five year plan, and his ten year plan. So you could see 
that he's he's thinking about this company in much more uh, longer periods of time than, than I think probably many analysts, uh, you know, on the on traditional analysts on Wall Street uh, look at. And, and so, for me, seeing clues where they're looking at it through longer periods of time, that's encouraging. And another one is, I, I, I would rather see companies that are not trying to cater to that Wall Street quarter-in, quarter-out earnings game. I mean, they just, I don't care really whether the company beats or misses Wall Street's expectations. I want to know that the company is meeting or exceeding its own expectations. And so you look at something like Amazon.com. That's one of the greatest examples out there. I think a company that couldn't care less about Wall Street's expectations, they don't measure themselves on that earnings per share metric. They don't care about the quarterly numbers, and they give these huge ranges. So you never know whether it's going to hit or miss. You have to go deeper and look at look at you know, the health of the business, the fundamentals of the business, are they doing what they said they would do? And, and I think in both cases, you know, with, with Amazon and certainly Facebook, I mean, I think you have management teams in place that are doing what they say they are going to do, and they're measuring themselves accordingly. And so, I, I think, you know, I like seeing companies that are, that are able to sort of get outside that box and play their own game. And you mentioned, Chris, the levers that CEOs can pull. From an investor standpoint, I don't like to see CEOs pulling too many levers on a quarter-to-quarter basis, because, you know, Starbucks is a good example of that. They not that I, I'm an investor in that company, so I like what they're doing, very successful, and um, I don't think that they're pulling levers in the wrong way. But when you come to Amazon versus Starbucks, Amazon will miss their own estimates, where Starbucks typically hits everything right on the the fraction of a penny because you know they are so good at managing everything on a quarter to quarter basis while maintaining uh, foresight, growing internationally, acquiring tea companies, and and everything like that. So. Um, I don't like the companies that I invest in to pull too many levers. Um, some of them are hard to identify, but if you can, um, you know, you want to keep an eye on that they're not doing it every single quarter. Well, and just to add on to what you said, Jason, about CEOs keeping Wall Street a little bit at arm's length, mm-hmm. I think there's a difference, and we've seen examples of this over the last couple of years. There's a difference between Someone like Jeff Bezos or, for decades, Jim Senegal when he was running Costco, or even Warren Buffett, who's just sort of like, here's my annual letter. You can read that. I'm not giving you any other sort of guidance. Uh, There's a difference between that and then CEOs who are trying to, for lack of a better term, make up metrics. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm I'm actually okay. <laughs> I, I'm actually better with a CEO who says, "No, we're not going to share this information." I would rather see that than someone saying, "Well, look at this metric that we just made." I mean, the classic example. We can justify be, this because of this, right? The, the gr- I know what you're thinking the group, about the Groupon. Yeah. Uh, what was that? Adjusted. <laughs> adjusted net income. It was some adjusted. Yeah, it was some adjusted number. Which it was adjusted number that backed out their marketing expenses. <laughs> when, for all intents and purposes, Groupon is a marketing That's all company. They did. Yeah. <laughs> Groupon'sy right there. That was in their initial filing to go public. I mean, so. that's that old argument, right? You, you just get the data. You can make the data say whatever that's you right. want to say. Yeah. Just alter your formula. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The other thing I'll throw out is, uh, and I don't think what I'm about to say is is nearly as important as uh, and meaningful as what Jason and Taylor said. But I, I I do find it interesting to see who are the people who are on the board of directors of a given company. Um, the CEO of the company that you're looking at, are they on the board of any other company? Mm-hmm. And if so, how many? That yeah. was something I picked up from my father-in-law, because he, he is someone who just says, look, you want to be on a couple of different boards, that's fine. You st- you, but when, when he starts seeing people who are on five, six, seven, sometimes eight boards of directors, 
then it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, wait a minute, how much time are you really right. spending? I'm how not much, an investor in those companies. How much yeah. value are you actually adding to your participation on all these different boards? I think that's an excellent point. I I, I think you know those, it's not like they're just joining those boards for nothing. I mean, they get paid. For Hopefully that not. So there's an expectation, right? <laughs> and, and so uh, yeah, if you see these guys are they're spread too thin, or these ladies are spread too thin. I mean. Yeah, what what you don't you definitely don't want to see that. I mean, you want to see them focusing first and foremost on the company that they're leading, and then if, yeah, if there's a, a board or two that they're on, that's great. But you know, when you start seeing them spread really thin, you have to question how much uh, attention they're really giving uh, their own business. One quick thing before we sign off, I know a lot of the listeners like to assign themselves a number, and I, last week the the gentleman said he was sixty million for the number of Hershey Kisses that are produced each day. <laughs> I'd like to see listeners provide a reason why they're, they're the number they chose. Wow, you're you're putting the onus. Don't just give me a number. Tell me why. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Taylor Muckerman, Jason Moser, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 